This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast where I interview authors about their latest works. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. If you have any comments or feedback for me, feel free to contact me through my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. If you enjoy these podcast episodes, you should check out the Literary Salon tab on my website and sign up for our newsletter. We are hosting some fabulous online events in 2021. Today, I am interviewing Nick Petrie about The Breaker, his sixth novel in the Peter Ash series. Nick received his MFA in fiction from the University of Washington and won a Hopwood Award for short fiction while an undergraduate at the University of Michigan. A husband and father, he has worked as a carpenter, remodeling contractor, and building inspector. He lives in Milwaukee, where he is hard at work on the next Peter Ash novel. I hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome, Nick. How are you today? I'm good. I'm very good. Thank you. Good. Well, I have to say I'm a super fan, so I'm thrilled to pieces to be able to talk with you today, and I really appreciate your taking the time to come on my podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. I actually really enjoy doing this kind of thing. It's one of the pleasures of being a writer is to talk to readers and talk to fans and sort of the antidote for spending the day by yourself in an office staring at a screen. So <laughs> again, I, I very much appreciate this. Absolutely. And I know that looks a little different this go around. So I'm sure for you, you've been kind of thinking of different ways to be doing publicity and events because of the pandemic. Yeah. It, one of the great pleasures is, is getting out in the world and talking with readers and, and actually booksellers are, who are some of my favorite people. And I'm not getting on a plane. The bookstores aren't having in-person events. So I'm, I'm doing some some online stuff. It'll be great fun and I'll, I'll still get to talk to people. But I, I really miss being in the world like everybody else. I'm really looking forward to this being over. I am too. I could not get focused on anything once all this started. And I was constantly on my phone scrolling through my CNN feed. And my husband's like, you've got to do something else other than constantly quote coronavirus statistics to me. So I kept trying books and I could nothing would stick. And then I was like, everybody always talks about how good Nick Petrie's books are. So I'll just start from the beginning. And so I picked up The Drifter and then I read all five of them in two weeks. So they are just fabulous. And then I loved The Breaker. And as soon as I got the galley, I read it. Oh, that's great. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, why don't we start with you telling me a little bit about The Breaker? Well, the, the main character is a guy named Peter Ash, who's a Marine Corps veteran having trouble adjusting to life after his war. And as The Breaker begins, Peter is living a low-profile life in Milwaukee. He's renovating houses with his friend Lewis and trying to avoid the attention of the police. Unfortunately, he's having lunch with Lewis and his girlfriend, June Cassidy, who actually has a very large role in this book. In downtown Milwaukee, where the book is set, when June spots a man with an assault rifle walking into the Milwaukee public market. So Peter and Lewis take after the gunman, hoping to prevent a bloodbath, but nothing ends up as they think it would be. And the events that follow are much stranger than Peter could imagine, including a troubled inventor, a ruthless tech thief, a cheerful assassin, and revolutionary technology that can change our world forever. I know we can't talk a lot about it because I don't want to spoil parts of the book, but the technology aspects were just fascinating to me. I want to talk a little bit more about how you kind of stumbled into that and came up with those ideas. Well, I kind of cut my teeth on science fiction. I still love and still read sci-fi and fantasy because when it's done well, it's, it's really fantastic stuff. Burning Bright was my second book. And there was a technology component to that, too. So this is this is a little bit of a return to some of those themes, which is the idea that we really have no idea really what we're getting into. We are adopting technology so fast that it really have long-ranging consequences, and, and we're really not thinking about anything but profit. And so that's 
one of the themes I'm interested in. I'm just a big old geek and, and all this stuff is really interesting to me. The speed of change in terms of technology and the social implications is, is, is really accelerating. And, and the stuff that was just a strange idea 20 years ago is now utterly unremarkable. The fact that we all are carrying a supercomputer around in our pocket and can contact anybody in the world with a, the touch of our finger, it's absolutely normal. But stuff that was only a dream, really, even 20 years ago, the smartphone is only 14 years old. I sometimes find that kind of hard to believe when I think back to even I, my oldest daughter is 19. And I even think about when she was a baby, we didn't even have smartphones then. It's, it is amazing how quick that technology has kind of revolutionized everything we do. It certainly, that certainly is true. And the thing that got me started on this book was I read a piece, and I can't remember where, about Facebook, Amazon, Google, Apple, and Microsoft. And these five companies have a huge influence, not only over technology, but also sort of the social changes that are happening. And if you think just about Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, who's the founder, so that company is is something like 14 years old, 15 years old, and he's the majority shareholder. He essentially gets to make decisions any way he wants to make them. And those have long-ranging ramifications in terms of Facebook's role in our culture, the kind of news or non-news that Facebook disseminates, that it's widely accepted all of the national intelligence agencies basically say that Facebook played a huge role in Russia's meddling in the 2016 election. I mean, it, this is this is real stuff. And so it's, it's a very small number of people who are making these decisions that have really deep and wide ranging implications. And so that was kind of the thing that got me rolling on this book. Well, and I think after the election, it's even more relevant. I mean, if you just see how this unfolded and the challenges and alleged election fraud and the stories people are sharing, you definitely can see what a difference social media has made in the way people consume their news and believe what's happening. Well, yeah, it really isolates us. And I'm not sure that is the best recipe for, for a healthy society. And I don't, I don't want to get in a soapbox here. I'm more interested in sort of the long-term ramifications, but it's an ongoing, actively fascinating thing. And, and it, it's also, for me, a little bit scary. So it was fun to sort of build a thriller around the things that make me nervous personally. Well, definitely the things that you wrote about made me nervous. <laughs> so I can understand that. But to shift gears, one of the things I've been curious about since I started this series was your inspiration for Peter Ash. Well, Peter, so I, my, in my former life, I've been a renovation contractor, and I've also been a home inspector. So if you if you bought a house, you hired a guy like me to tell you what was wrong with it. A million years ago, back in the right after the surge in Iraq, which was 2008, 2009, I had all of these clients coming back from war overseas who had been in combat. And, and I, I had certainly followed the, the course of the war, but much to my shame, I hadn't really thought about their lives after war. And I was kind of a safe person for them to talk to because I We'd spend three or four hours together as I went through their house, but they, they didn't know me before. They were never going to see me again. I wasn't part of their home friend group. I wasn't part of their, their military friend group. And apparently there's something about me that pe people tell me the strangest stuff. So like down in the basement, looking at the furnace and the foundation, and, and my client is telling me about what it's like to be in combat in Iraq or what it's like to come home you know, missing a limb or, and, and it was really compelling to me. And, and they, none of them were people who seemed to feel sorry for themselves at all. They had gone through this astonishing, life-changing 
experience. And I just, I just kind of fell in love with these young men and women who had been through this. And so I started reading, started picking the brains of people that I knew, and I became more methodical talking to those clients. And that's kind of where Peter Ash came from, was my trying to understand this chunk of the population. I'm not a veteran myself. I never served. Uh, but it was just a very compelling thing to me. And it also seemed at the time that it was really not something anybody was talking about. And so I wanted to sort of tell the story of somebody who had been through this and was still going through this. So that was kind of where he came from. And that's honestly my sort of goal for the series was to show Peter's path of recovery from somebody who his post-traumatic stress is so bad in the first book that he can't spend 15 minutes inside without having a panic attack. He's claustrophobic to to this path of where he, he begins to work his way toward a more normal life. And I wanted to show what that was like and how difficult that was. And the, the strange thing is I get all this mail from veterans who say, wow, you really captured this just right. Like really moving, really touching messages from people. And Vietnam, that's through modern day. It's really quite something. Well, in his particular type of PTSD, the static and the not being able to be inside for very long, how did you come up with that? Well, I was a little mercenary in that regard. The claustrophobia just made a better protagonist for a series because if, if he was an agoraphobe, if he couldn't go outside, that was, a, that was a certain kind of book. It would be very mental. It would be very interior. There'd be a lot of computer stuff. And that wasn't what I wanted to write. I love the outdoors. I spend as much time outside as I reasonably can. It, for me, being outside is really, it's the cure for, for any bad day for me is to go for a walk or to go by the lake or, you know, I live in Wisconsin, so we have a lot of natural world around us. There's a lot of evidence that it works that way on people with post-traumatic stress as well. And so part of it was just the way to work that in. The white static is really just his name for sort of the rise of that panic attack, because that's really how post-traumatic stress manifested in whatever regard, whether you're, you're claustrophobic, you're agoraphobic, you can't be in crowds. You, I mean, there, there are as many different kinds of post-traumatic stress as there are people who suffer from it. But the, the panic attack piece is, is the, the more similar component to it. And I, I gave it a name and I wanted readers to experience what it was like through Peter. And so I, I tried to make it very visceral. And, and again, I get, it's just, I get the craziest mail from readers, from vets, especially who I, this one guy who I'll never, I'll never forget said, I didn't know I had post-traumatic stress until I read the drifter. Oh, wow. And, and I, I thought I was just going crazy and I was ready to kill myself. He, he sent me a picture of himself in his dress blues with his wife and his three kids. Oh, that's so touching. It, it is absolutely touching. And I can't tell you how much it moves me that this is actually something that speaks to people. Well, I think that's actually what resonated so much with me was that he's such an appealing protagonist and he's different. I mean, I think it's a unique, you don't see that a lot in mystery series, but also he is working through something that, you know, a lot of people are dealing with. And also, I just love the plots that you choose. I mean, that's another question I had for you. You always choose such original, unique, but very strong stories that end up with great resolutions. And I just think that's amazing because sometimes that's hard to do. Well, it, it is hard to do, and I wish I could tell you how I did it. I'm not someone who develops the plot ahead of time. I don't write an outline. I don't do a beat line. I, I sort of begin with a situation and, a, and a, a very vague idea, 
it sort of unspools from there. And so I am, I, I work to tell myself a story that I'm interested in that keeps me interested. And that, that's kind of all I have to go on. But I, I've read so much, not only crime fiction, but I, I, I read a lot. I mean, I started this, I started writing as a fan. And I think part of that you can, you can see in the, the stories that I choose to tell is I am trying to do something that's different. I am trying to, to have a hero who is really vulnerable and you really sort of see the heart of him. And I don't like simple black and white answers. And the good guy is all pure as the driven snow and bad guy is, you know, has a, the blackest of hearts. And to me, that's not interesting. I, you know, there's a, an old expression in, in writing fiction that even the villain is the hero of his own story. And, and I, I love to show my villains the way that they see themselves and I love and P- Peter is, does not always do nice things that violence from his war lives in him. And part of him knows that he should live a, a nice, quiet life. But he also sort of seeks out situations where he gets to indulge that side of him. And I think that's certainly true of people that I've met who there's their better angel. And then there's the other demon on their shoulder. And there is something deeply satisfying about giving in to your urge to to violence, even if it just means you're trolling somebody on Twitter, you know it's not the right thing to do, and, and you're not going to feel good afterwards, but there is some pleasure to scorching the earth in that way. In the short term, it provides you relief. Exactly. Well, and I think you do a great job of showing that in Peter, that he does sometimes give in to that sort of dark side or whatever you want to call it, and that that kind of gives him a rush. And then afterwards, he's sort of chagrined, or sometimes not, but that that he kind of does feed off of that. Well, and it's a it's a fine line, right? I, I did a book club not too long ago where, where somebody asked the question of, Peter's kind of a vigilante. How, how do you feel about that? And I am deeply conflicted about that because I don't think that's how people should go through life. I don't think we should all be taking the law into our own hands. But on the other hand, I'm just telling stories. I'm making stuff up. These are stories that have been in our our culture for a long, long time. And I guess my goal is to tell them with enough complexity and enough shades of gray to make you think about what those choices are and, and why. That's interesting because I don't think I would characterize Peter that way. I mean, I could see where someone would. I don't really feel that way about him. I mean, I just am almost always rooting for him and not thinking, why did he do that? Well, that goes to show that I'm actually trying to do my job. I really appreciate that. And and that's really the goal is for you to see his flaws and forgive them, because that's what makes things interesting to me as a, as a writer is that we all have flaws. I have talked to readers about this before about Peter is not always the nicest of guys. And the funny thing is that readers, like you said, readers really don't care. Readers just root for him and they like him. And when he does something that's not great, he feels bad about it, which helps. I guess that's true. I don't know. That That's interesting. Now I'm going to have to think about that and kind of look back through my books. Well, talking about the various books in the series, do you have a favorite of them? Well, my favorite is always the one I've just finished. So that currently the breaker is my favorite. My least favorite is the one that I'm working on right now because it's it, the struggle is always do I don't really know what it is and I don't really know where it's going and that's that's just what writing is like for me. I, I'm so sick of 
the book by the time it goes to my editor and it's been through three different edits with her and with the copy editor and everything else, I'm just sick to death of it. And then I start to start to revise my thinking and I, and I sort of say to myself, well, you know, I really like that scene or, you know, I, boy, there's sort of this other thing that sort of goes through the book and well, that, I, I guess I did that pretty well. Like, I, like I'm okay with that. So there's a point at which you sort of go from hating something to falling back in love with it. And, and that's an interesting process. Well, also time helps there, I think. Like you said, when you're living in the middle of it and you're so tired of redoing a section or reworking a part or talking about wording, you're like, I'm done with this. But then you put it away and you come back to it and you're like, oh, I did really like this story. Yeah, yeah. Like in, in, this, in this one, there's a, a character named Edgar who is a, a, a kind of a strange cat. And I didn't plan to have him show up in quite this way, but, but we get Edgar's point of view. Ed, Edgar is, is a strange creature. Mm-hmm. And, and that was some of the most fun I had writing this book was to show the way Edgar thought about the things that he did. Well, Edgar definitely is an interesting character. You know, they say that all your characters are part of you. And so I'm a little concerned about what part of me is Edgar. <laughs> Well, with that, do you have a favorite character that you've written? Well, the, there are th- really three continuing characters. There's Peter Ash, there's June Cassidy, who is his sweet patootie, and there's and there's Lewis. And they all have things that I really love about them. I mean, Peter is sort of my avatar. He's kind of my sense of humor. He's a very moral person, a strong sense of right and wrong, even if not everybody would agree with that. Peter makes choices that I personally would not make. Peter is always the guy running toward the fight. I'm the guy who stays in his office and looks out the window. It's fun to write about somebody who has sort of a very different process uh, than I do. June is fun because she, writing about their relationship actually is is one of the most fun things for me because I get to see how they see each other. So you get another viewpoint on a familiar character, and I and I always enjoy that stuff. I think for readers, though, Lewis is is the favorite character. I, I get I think Lewis has his own fan club, and I get I get like love letters, like please pass this on to Lewis. <laughs> you know, it'd be so nice to have a sidekick like that that was looking out for you and taking care of you with that kind of sense of humor, you know? Sure. Well, or even to be Lewis, right? Lewis doesn't care about anything. Lewis does what exactly what he wants. And and wouldn't we all like to be somebody who we, we were very capable and we just did exactly what we wanted and we didn't pay any attention to the rules? I guess so. I don't know. I still think I might want Lewis as my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> Just because that idea that then no matter what happened, you had somebody there who you knew could take care of you. Right, right. Well, and that's right in their relationship between Peter and Lewis is is a lot of fun. And and I'm interested in male relationships and I love books that showcase those. But this idea that especially between men who've gone to war, there is a very deep and abiding relationship. There's a bond that's really like nothing else. And I've heard this over and over and over again. And and that's really sort of the bond that, that Peter and Lewis have, is that each would do anything for the other. And and it's it's fun to do to drop Lewis's point of view in as well, because Lewis has a has his own very distinct take on the world. I keep threatening to do a book where Lewis is the protagonist. And I think it'd be fun, but it would be really hard to do. That would be fun, but I can see where it would be hard also. You'd have to, I guess, really come up with more filled in backstory too. I mean, you do have some backstory, but really to kind of have his whole story out there. 
Well, I, I know his story, but I would have to I'd have to actually put it in the book in, to some extent. That's what I mean, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you have his story, but the rest of us would learn his story. Well, what are you working on now? I am working on a book set in Nebraska, rural Nebraska, and I, I'm not as far along as I'd like to be. It's sort of the nature of deadlines and everything else. It's a more intimate story, and it begins with Peter picking up a pregnant woman on the side of a gravel road. She's run out of gas, but then it turns out that her uh, ex-husband is an ex-cop, and he is uh, very unhappy with her. So that's kind of how things get started in the, in the book. Oh, that sounds good. And when is it supposed to come out? Do you have any of that yet, or is it too far off for that? In uh, a perfect world, it would be January 2022. Okay. So just kind of on a standard schedule, as long as you're moving along, like you said. <laughs> yeah, they, Putnam really likes that January date, and every book of mine has come out essentially on the same Tuesday in January. Oh, really? Okay, that's interesting. Sort of that second Tuesday of January has been your time. Yeah, it's somewhere between the 12th and the 16th. I like that. Well, that's a great time for a book to come out because you sort of started the new year, you've gotten past actual New Year's, and then everybody's kind of ready to look forward again. Well, and I think hopefully people get gift cards from their local independent bookseller. So that's a, it's nice to have something to spend your money on. No, that's very true. Well, I am all about titles and covers, and your covers are very interesting, and they definitely reflect the story. And you can tell they're all with the same thing, but they're all different enough. So do you have any say in that, or how does that work for you in the cover process? It's evolved over time. At the beginning, I didn't have any say, and I didn't, I didn't know that I could maybe influence things a little bit. So I got the hardcover for The Drifter, which is not my favorite cover. And I just sort of said, well, okay. Uh, it wasn't really what I had in mind, but I didn't really know what I had in mind anyway. Right. As things progress, I, they ask me a little bit more about what my opinion is. And I think they're a little more, they're always a little more solicitous. The The cover for the breaker is, is actually my favorite cover. It's, it's just this, uh, it's a, it's a big sort of elegant photograph of a field with a tree growing out of the middle of it. And I, I, that to me is, I, I love those sort of big photographic covers. The trade paperback, which is the bigger paperback, there were some, the, the UK version really has wonderful covers. And so I mentioned that to my publisher. And then the trade paperback has a cover that's very much like the UK cover. It's this, again, it's a, it's a very moody kind of picture of an, an urban parking lot that's empty. So it, they're starting to ask my opinion a little bit more. But what I've learned is that the art department, the more I drill down on what I might like, the less I like the results. Oh. <laughs> so they, they really know what they're doing. There's really an art to a book cover. And I it's not an art that I know anything about. I have my preferences, but certain covers are really speaking to certain audiences and and certain genres and subgenres. There are conventions and they're trying to speak to a certain group of readers with a with a, a certain kind of cover. I, I just find it fascinating and I wish I wish I had the visual knowledge. To, to really be able to participate, but I don't, I don't think I do. Well, I love the cover for the breaker too, and I can't wait to see it in person because I've only seen it electronically. So I can't wait to actually have the book in person because it's gorgeous. But I agree with you on the cover ideas there. I had no idea. I mean, obviously certain types of books have groupings of covers, like you can tell, but I didn't really realize there was so much of a science to it that historical fiction had a certain type of a look and these kind of crime fiction, just different types of genres had different looks. And that's just fascinating to me too. Yeah, the the 
book world, in terms of the sales and marketing stuff, there's this whole arcane, almost an occult knowledge that they have, which I just find fascinating. And I, I'm always trying to learn new stuff. In part, that's just kind of how I'm wired. The world is endlessly fascinating. So I'm always trying to, to add to my knowledge, but I want to be helpful and not be in the way. So the more I learn, the more I can figure out how to do that. It's also interesting too, that, that they tried for the first book, The Drifter, the, the hardcover has a, has a certain aesthetic. And then the second book, Burning Bright, has Again, a, a different aesthetic, and it really isn't until the third one, which is lighted up, that they sort of figured out where they wanted to go. And they had started with something that was very graphical, and and I pushed back, and they said, yeah, we really think this is the thing. And then I went to Book Expo and ended up talking to one of the marketing people, and they said, what do you think of the cover? And I said, well, <laughs> here's what I think of the cover. And so they ended up redesigning it, and, and from lighted up on, it's really been much more online with what I like. So I'm, I'm very happy with their choices. Well, the cover that I'm familiar with for The Drifter is the trade paperback cover, but that's different than what the hardback cover was, right? Because I think I have seen the hardback cover when I've kind of been messing around on Goodreads or Barnes & Noble or something, but the, the Drifter trade paperback cover, is that the one that they kind of did a little bit different when the trade paperback came out? Right. That's very different from the hardback. It's much more in line with, with the newer books. Right. Okay. Yes. Because when I see them, you know, having worked at Murder by the Book and I see them all lined out, they all look like they pretty much go together well now. But I have seen the other and thought, oh, it doesn't seem in step with the rest of them. And I agree with you. I like the newer ones better. Well, it's it's interesting because I, I'm not sure they really, I'm not sure they really quite understood what I was trying to do or how I saw the book. The Drifter hardcover, it's a very conventional cover. And they weren't really planning to do anything very interesting in terms of the tour or anything else. And then Madeline McIntosh, who is now the head of all of Penguin Random House, she read it over Christmas before it was launched. And I, apparently she had a conversation with somebody in marketing who said, this book is really good and we need to do something about it. And so the book got another little level of push. There was a secondary tour, and that's the book that went on to be nominated for six awards and win three. So Madeline McIntosh clearly knows her stuff. Well, that makes sense because I do think there are so many books out there. And if you don't have someone who can say this is going to be better than most of them, then things kind of do get lost in the shuffle. But I think that now they've got those covers, which I mean, I know they've had for several books, but they're, I think they're very dynamic and they stand out. To me, they seem to be very fitting for your book because that just drives me crazy when I'll read a book and then I'm like, I don't understand this cover and the book because there's a disconnect. And so it's nice to me when they go together better. Well, you really do seem to be a connoisseur of covers. I mean, I, it was something, honestly, I never gave any thought about it until I actually was going to be a published author. So I, where does this interest of yours come from? I don't know. I guess I'm like you. Like, everything interests me, and I always want to learn about something. As soon as I have some inkling that there's something like that out there, I just become interested in it. And I have been to Book Expo several times, and I'm so sad that now it will not be happening. So I guess it just sort of was interesting to me to see why certain covers stood out to me and why. I like some better than others. And then I would just, I mean, I'm such a, I don't know, I guess it's a rule follower type A person. So I'd read this book and I'd be like, I do not get this cover with this book. And then I host a literary salon here in Houston, actually. And we've had a couple of times where the cover doesn't really match the story and people are like, would come back afterwards and be like, that wasn't at all like I thought it was going to be based on the cover. So I guess just over time and through this podcast and talking to authors, and it's just something that it really catches my eye. And I think it's way more important than some people do in terms of what a cover looks like and 
how you're going to impact readers and even just how you're going to interest readers initially. Yeah, well, the, the whole thing about judge a book by its cover, I mean, it's what we all do. You pull it off the shelf and you, you, you expect it to be a certain kind of thing. I think it's fascinating. There's actually a wonderful book. It's a coffee table book, I think, all about book cover art. Oh, really? And yeah, I, it's a the guy who did uh, some really iconic book covers, the, the Michael Crichton Jurassic Park cover with the dinosaur skeleton, mm-hmm. the Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton head. Whoever that artist is, apparently is famous in the book world and has done all of these covers that you would totally recognize. I can't, I don't know if I ever bought it or if I bought it and gave it away because I was looking for it that long ago and I couldn't find it. But it's really interesting to look at this and to sort of learn how the book world thinks about it and talks about it. It was a fascinating read. I'm sure you can find it. I'll have to Google it and find that. The other thing that I do, I am a bookstagrammer. And so I follow a couple different book designers on Instagram too. And it's fascinating to me when they'll post about like the four selections for a particular book and what got chosen and things like that. I just, for some reason, it's just very appealing to me. I'll have to track that down. I, I think that would, I'd love to, I'd love to follow those people. Yeah, I'll have to look because I, I definitely, there's a couple of them. I think I'm trying to think of which publishers are with, but yes, it's interesting. And a lot of times you'll just find it when somebody posts their new cover and they'll say, thanks to so-and-so for this great cover. And then I'll go to that Instagram account and start following them. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Well, before we wrap up, would you like to tell me what you've read recently that you really liked? Well, I am working my way through Lawrence Block's Matthew Scudder series. It was started, I believe, in the early 80s, and the last one was, I don't know, five or six years ago. Larry is now, I think, in his 80s. But this, to me, is one of the all-time greatest crime fiction series. I think it's 18 books, and it follows the protagonist, Matthew Scudder, from uh, an alcoholic ex-cop who basically is an unofficial, unlicensed private investigator all the way through hitting bottom as an alcoholic, getting sober and sort of what his recovery is like and fits and starts his relationships with several women along the way. They're all set in New York. And so they, and they're all, and which is where Larry lives. And it's, it's a love letter to New York, every single book. They're really, they're really gorgeous. This is my fourth time probably through the series. And so it's, I cannot recommend them more highly. He's, it's, he's a, such a wonderful writer. I love that series. And in fact, that's kind of the first series I can remember really picking up one and then starting reading them. I mean, I read them when I was in, I guess, high school. Whenever they came out, I started reading them. I haven't read the last couple, but I've read a number of them and I just love them. And then he's done those really cool, he's been the editor of those art series where he has people write mysteries about particular pieces of art. Have you seen those? I have not. Yeah, great. The first one was Edward Hopper, and I'm a huge Edward Hopper fan. So that's actually why I read it in the first place. But I think there's like maybe 15 Edward Hopper paintings in the book, and everybody writes a mystery or a story about them. And I think he's done three of those now. One was all American art. I can't remember what the third one was, but I really like his writing. And he's mainly the editor. I don't know that he has a story in any of them, but he kind of writes the intro. And Right, right. No, he's, he's had a long and storied career. I also really like his Keller books. He's got a character named Keller who's a hitman. And there are, there are three or maybe four or even five of those. Okay. And they, and they're, they're very sardonic and kind of a lot of black humor and in their, in their own way, really kind of moving. The the Matt Scudder books 
if, if there's a prototype for kind of what I'm trying to do with Peter Ash, it's the, it's the Matthew Scudder books because they have that same kind of submerged emotion throughout that just sort of comes up through the cracks and the sort of the, the deeply flawed kind of broken character who's kind of trying to find his way through. Uh, I, I'm a, and they're funny and they're, the dialogue is fantastic and they're very kind of talky, but they just like, they're so fast. I don't know what he does. And I, I've been really looking at the one I'm reading now, which is, I think it's a dance at the slaughterhouse where you just lose track of time. You just, it just, the, the paragraphs, the sentences just flow one to the next. It's just seamless. I was up until midnight the other night, which is way past my bedtime, just because I just could not, it didn't even occur to me to turn out the light. Well, that's always, to me, the sign of a really good book is when you just cannot put it down. And that's just fascinating to me because I've always loved that series and I completely love your series. And that's just interesting then now to have that tie in. We are all the, the sum total of our influences. And, and that, that's just the nature of, of how it works when you're trying to make something that you draw from the stuff that you have loved before. But I'm a big rereader, so I like to go back and see things. And I, again, I, I discover new things in these books. There are new things to appreciate. And not every writer will stand up to a second read, uh, let alone a fourth read. And, uh, and there's, there's actually another book that I really love, which is by a Milwaukee writer named Erica Ruth Neubauer called Murder at the Nita House. It's a historical, and it, again, it, it also has a little bit of sort of the damaged protagonist. Uh, it's a female protagonist. It's set in 1920s. This one's in Egypt. And it's the first in a series. And again, the writing is so quick. She's funny. There's just a great kind of spark in her writing, which is an absolute joy. I think I read that book in two sittings. I really liked that one too. I thought it was really clever and I liked the resolution. I didn't see everything that was coming and I liked the setting and I liked the cover. (laughs) Well, good. Well, I really appreciate your joining me today and taking the time to talk with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. You're great fun to talk to, and I wish you great luck with this podcast. Again, I think this is a great project of yours, and I I hope uh, you keep it going. Thank you. I have really enjoyed it, and it's been a lot of fun, and I've learned a lot of things that I didn't expect to, and I always enjoy that type of thing. So thank you again, and good luck with The Breaker making its way out into the world. Oh, thank you, Cindy. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram and Pinterest at Thoughts From A Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Nick's book can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to KP Regan for the sound editing, and I hope you'll tune in next time. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.